morning. Good to have you with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're in the middle of a four-week series, kicked it off last weekend. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Spirit-filled is the title of this particular teaching series. Spirit-filled life gives you what people go to the bottle to get, and that is the ability to face reality. Alcohol makes you happy because of what? Anybody know? Why does alcohol make you happy? Because it dulls your sense of reality. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit-filled life, makes you joyful because it does what? Because it increases your sense of reality. It increases your sense of God's presence, God's grace working in your life. It increases your sense that God is for you and not against you. It makes all the difference in the world when you begin to understand that. When the reality of that truth sinks deep into your heart, it makes all the difference in your life. People also drink to party, but there is no greater party in the spirit-filled life. It is the most amazing life you could ever hope or dream to live this side of heaven. I'm convinced of that. And so in this teaching series, we are looking at the magnitude, means, method, and marks of the spirit-filled life. Last weekend, we looked at the magnitude, and this morning, we're looking at the means. So if you'd bow your heads with me, let's pray, and we'll dive into our text this morning. God, Father God, you are, you are the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. In you we live, we move, we have our being. The heavens cannot contain you. And yet you have chosen to live within those who put their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would show us your glory, captivate us by your love. Ravish our hearts with your beauty. Intensify the work of your Holy Spirit through the study of your word. So that we can see more clearly, see you more clearly so that we can savor you more, more completely and show you more compellingly to this lost and dying world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at our text here. We'll read through it. Starting verse 18, chapter 5, Ephesians. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then the writer goes on and explains what that looks like in our lives. If we are indeed living a spirit-filled life, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So what is the means to the spirit-filled life? I'm going to give you six thoughts, six ideas, six points here so that we can understand really the way or the approach to or how to live the Spirit-filled life. Here's the first one. It's on your notes. It is not optional, but a command that includes everyone. It is not optional, but a command that includes everyone. The statement that says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, is a command. We know that as you look at the grammar, the, the English here, how it's laid out, actually, literally in the Greek, the New Testament was in the Greek, it is in the imperative mood, which meaning it, is, it isn't optional, it's a command. So he's giving us a command, be filled with the Spirit. It is also in the plural rather than the singular form, which includes everyone, not just super saints, Billy Graham or Mother Teresa types, but this is everyone. If you're a brand new believer or an old time believer, if you're a leader of a church or a worker in that church, it doesn't matter. He's saying for all of us that we can, should be filled with the Spirit. We can experience the fullness of God in our lives. It's a commandment. What, what do you think of? What comes to mind? What should be the attitude of those who look to God's Word and we see and we read all of these commandments? I answer that with 1 John 5, 3. What, would, what should be our attitude as it relates to 
this commandment and the many more that are in God's word. First John 5, 3, it says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's a great verse. So this is what it's telling us, that the commandments that God gives us in his word, that we are to respond to those out of his love for us and our love for him. So for this is the love of God. When you begin to get a glimpse, just a glimpse is all that it takes of his amazing love for you, the natural normal response would be to respond back in love. And the best way to do that, this verse is saying, is by our obedience to him. So for this is love of God, his love for us, our love for him, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Why is that? Because it's in his love, when we put our faith in him, he indwells us with his Holy Spirit, and with his commandments come his enablements, his empowering presence in our life, enabling us to be what he wants us to be, to do what he wants us to do. I've often used that That is the definition for grace, but that could also be the definition of the spirit-filled life. The word grace meaning God's favor in our lives, his unmerited favor. And so he's telling us here to, uh, as a commandment, to be filled with the spirit. I'm convinced that the mark of a Christian is that he loves to have God tell him how to live his life. When you understand God's love, you just love to have God tell you how to live your life. You want to hear his commandments. You want to follow his commandments. And, uh, and so when he says here, be filled with the Spirit, I also believe that it, there's a verse that's closely related to that. There's a lot of different verses closely related to that, but an, a verse here that I put down is uh, one of our cross-references is the great commandment, the great commandment. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what the great commandment is in the Bible. Real quick, do that. The great commandment. Anybody have a clue? What is the great commandment? Anybody want to yell it out to me? The great commandment. What's that? There you go. You got it, Eric. I'm sure that others of you had that too. What's interesting is that Jesus was asked, how would you sum up all of the scripture. What's the most important commandment? What could we set as the, as the aim or the target of our life? What should be our deepest passion, purpose, uh, purpose of our life or passion or what should be the priority of our life? And Jesus said, and this is one of many places, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. I think that's closely related to this idea of being spirit-filled. I really believe that that's what spirit-filled is. It's, just, it's loving God with all of your being. And when you begin to understand how much he loves you, it's natural and normal to want to say, God, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to live every breath of my life, every part of my being. I want to show you my love. I want to live my life to put you on display, to show you how much I love you. And I'm, I believe that's really uh, what that is saying in the Great Commission. I think he's just reiterating it here. He's giving us kind of a different idea of that. And uh, I, I, oftentimes when I study verses, I'll put different words in there and, and uh, kind of like a thesaurus just to kind of expand my understanding of it. We could also say as it relates to this idea of do not get drunk with wine, we could say don't be intoxicated or don't be dominated or controlled with alcohol or whatever is your choice of drug. I think you could put just about anything in there because every one of us, in fact, the Bible really only gives us two choices. We will either be filled with the Spirit or we're going to be drunk on something. We will be intoxicated or controlled by something. Something will dominate our lives. We will set as the target or the aim of our lives something. It will either be God or it will be something else. It will be something in creation. We, and our natural inclination is to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things more than the Creator. And so he's saying, hey, don't, don't be intoxicated or controlled or dominated by anything other than, than God. But be intoxicated, dominated, and controlled 
by God. Why? Why would he say that? It's almost as if, and I was thinking about this, we, uh, Nancy and I had the first big weekend to watch our grandkids. So uh, I'm a little sleep deprived. <laughs> to say the least, I think Nancy even more so than me. But uh, it's just, it's amazing how they can run you ragged and I'm not as young as I used to be. And so my heart goes out to those that have a house full of kids. And, uh, and so... Uh, I was, I was thinking about this. It would be almost kind of like me setting the house rule when my grandsons come over or when my kids were still in, the, in our house. Okay, here's the house rule. Let daddy or let grandpa love you, take care of you, support you, watch over you. Okay, sign me up. I'll do that. That's in essence what he's saying. You're going to make the direction of your life one thing or another. You'll either make it, if you don't make it the creator, you'll make it in something in creation. Don't let those things intoxicate you, dominate you, control your life. But let me, let my love intoxicate you, overwhelm you. I want to guide and direct. I want to empower your life. I want to be a part of your life. I created you as an object of my love. So allow me to love on you. Allow me to to surround you with my presence, to walk with you throughout your day and to be with you. I am for you, not against you. So it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful commandment when you really understand it and you look at it from that perspective, from the perspective of his amazing love. Why, why command that? Why would he command that? Because that's what we were created to do, is, is to be objects of his love and to have this relationship with him. And not only that, it's the only place where we're going to ultimately find complete and total satisfaction. And so he says, it's, so, so he, first of all, when we understand this, the means to the spirit-filled life is we need to understand that it's not optional, but a command, and that includes everyone. Here's the next one, number two. It is not something that I can control, <clears throat> but can place myself in the position to receive it. One of the things that you find throughout Scripture, although we've kind of turned Scripture into uh, techniques which I think it's wrong in our society today. We tend to be very superficial and turn it into some form of technique. And nowhere in Scripture are you going to find six easy steps to the more to the spirit-filled life or anything. And I hope that, that this doesn't, any of this teaching doesn't sound like that because it's not that easy. It's not like you can, you can somehow control it, manipulate it, six easy steps to the spirit-filled life. It doesn't happen like that. It is not something that I can control but can place myself in the position to receive it. As we look back at the language here of these uh, words, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is in the passive voice. And the object has something acting upon it from the outside. In other words, we are to put ourselves in the position where the Spirit of God can control us. The thing that came to mind for me was that you can't control a tornado, but you can certainly put yourself in the path of that tornado. And that's a little bit of the idea that he's talking about here. Is that you need to put your path, put your life in the path of what God is up to and what he's doing. And so it is kind of a passive, but there is some kind of action. And, and so he's saying to make sure that you align yourself up and allow God to do what he wants to do in your life as it relates to this spirit-filled life. A couple of verses that came to mind, Romans 8, 5 through 6 helps us to understand this. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And when he he talks about flesh, he's talking about really a self-centered, self-absorbed kind of life. It's the natural inclination of our heart to be self-centered, self-absorbed. Oh, by the way, in America today, we teach people how to do that, don't we? We make life all about them. And, And God created us in such a way to never for us to make life about us, but for us to make our lives about him. In fact, that's where he goes on. He goes on in these verses and he says, but those, in contrast, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So you got this contrast. You're either going to mind the things of the flesh. You're going to make life about you. You're going to be self-absorbed, self-centered, trying to find life Or you're going to make life about God and you're going to be focused on Him and your relationship with Him. And notice what it says here, the result of that. For to set your mind on the flesh is, what's that word? 
death. Death. Death is means separation. When you die physically, your soul separates from your body. When you die spiritually, you are separated from God. So he's saying if you live a life that's preoccupied with self, you, you are separating yourself from the God life. But then he goes on, he says, but to set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. There's no greater life and peace than the life that is consumed by God, that spirit-filled life. Galatians 5.16, he puts it this way, but I say, walk by the spirit. So your whole manner of life, not just your thoughts, and thoughts meaning also the things that you treasure the most because what dominates your thoughts are the things that are most important to you. But he's, but he's saying not just your thoughts, but, but your whole manner of life, your walk. But I say walk by the Spirit. So let your life be intoxicated, dominated, controlled by God. Make your life not about yourself, but about Him. Not about your glory, but His glory. And if you do that, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And you, you won't have that, that bottomless pit within your soul trying to fill it up with something in creation, which we all know that inevitably that will never satisfy. And so he gives us really some great insight. And, and now this is what we need to keep in mind, and you've heard me say this many times before. You've got to get this. The battlefield is our hearts, it's our minds. That today, even right now, every one of us are either living in the flesh, even as you sit out there, you're living in the flesh or you're living in the spirit. You're, you're thinking about God and wanting more of God or you're just thinking about something else, about yourself. And as you live out your life throughout this day and, and the coming week, you will live in one of those two categories. Now, you just need to know... Because of our sinful nature, values of our world, our adversary, your natural inclination will be the flesh. It will always be the flesh. It will always be about you, about being preoccupied with you as opposed to the spirit. But I'll tell you what, personal experience, I, I, I know this, that the more I focus on God, the more satisfaction, fulfillment, and the less preoccupation, the less self-pity and pride and boasting and all these other things that tend to clutter up my life, that begin to experience in my life as a result of that focus on self as opposed to the focus on the Spirit and the Holy Spirit working in my life. But the battleground is our minds. It's our thoughts. It's our heart. It's what are we going to treasure? What's most important to us? Am I going to live my life for me? Am I going to live my life for God? And the Bible talks about this, this idea of this battlefield. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says this, that the God of this world speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Have you ever had the experience of trying to share your faith with someone and talk about the beauty and the glory and the splendor of Jesus and they just kind of look at you like, I don't know what you're even talking about. It's because the Bible says that the God of this world has blinded their minds. They cannot see. And so if that's what he does to unbelievers, what does he do to believers? Well, it tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven three that he seeks to lead astray the minds of, un, of believers. He seeks to lead astray our minds from our sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians eleven three. So the battlefield is in the mind. So if he can get you to, even as a believer, focus on the flesh, and your life is preoccupied with the flesh, and that's death. But if you can begin to battle in your mind, in your heart, to stay focused on the Spirit and on what God is doing and living a God-centered life, that's life and peace. Oh, by the way, I can tell which one you're living in based on the results that it produces in your life because the one is death, the other one will be life and peace. So where would that place you today, this last week? This last month. See, the Spirit brings life and peace. When we do that which we were created to do, to focus on Him, to live God-centered lives, there's not a better life. There's not a better life out there. I know some of you are out there chasing all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm telling you, that stuff that you're chasing does not even come close to having life in the Spirit in all of who God is and what He has for us and how much He loves us. 
And so that's, that's a little bit of that. There's a video clip I want to show you from the movie. Um, it's Peaceful Warrior. It's kind of an interesting movie. It's got some good stuff in there, although it's really kind of new age-ish, so use your discernment as you watch it. And I think they've hijacked a few truths from God's words, certainly. But this is where this, I want you to watch this character here. He's really, he's focused on just a tons of things. I mean, I can certainly relate, and, and he's, he's real busy. And this kind of guru guy kind of is trying to teach him to take out the trash and really be careful about what's in his mind. Check this out, and we'll talk about it. Oh, he's sorry, where are you going? One of Palmer horse tryouts. Ah! Oh, God. <laughs> Less than an hour. Hey, hey, wait up. Tell him to hold up for me, all right? What? Listen, totally forgot about this. Now I get this thing at the gym. It's pretty important. We'll make this quick. Sure. your mind. You what? I emptied No, my you mind. didn't. You threw me into the river. And why you were falling? Tell me, Dan. What were you thinking about? I don't know. Were you thinking about school? No. Grocery shop? No. This thing you had to hurry off to? No, I was... Present. Devoted. 100% to the experience you were having. You even had a word for it. You're out of your mind, you know that? It's taking a lifetime of practice. We want you out of your mind, too, Dan. What is that you do? Some kind of martial arts move? I didn't see it coming. You weren't paying attention. Even now you're not. Your mind's filling up again. You're missing out on everything that's going on. There's nothing going on. is anything that is keeping you from the only thing that matters this moment here now and when you truly are in the air now you'll be amazed at what you can do and how well you can do it if that's true true in the secular, in the non-Christian uh, realm, even more so is that true in the spiritual realm. You know, often, how often we hear people say, hey, slow down and smell the roses. And, and there's so much that's going on around our life, and we don't see those things that are going on in our life. If that's true in the secular, even more so, I'm telling you, even more so is that true in the spiritual realm of our lives. How often I, I want to understand if how God has wanted to speak to me, and I've been so busy, and my, my life is tends to be preoccupied with uh, so much of thinking about the past and what I said and the brain debates or, or preparing for the future, never really living in the now, right now. And, um, and I think we miss, uh, because we're not fully present, we're not fully present, we miss his presence. We miss his presence. We miss what he's wanting to say to us. 
And so we've got to learn how to uh, ruthlessly eliminate hurry and worry and preoccupation with the past and the future and learn to live right now. A verse that has echoed through my heart and mind for a number of years now, very convicting for me, but I keep coming back to it because it's, it's been really helpful uh, for me. And it is found in uh, Psalm 46.10. Maybe you're familiar with it. It says, be still and, you guys know how it goes? And know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. The message puts it this way. It says this. It says, step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at me, your high God. Step out of the traffic. How many would say you got a lot of traffic in your life? Kind of mentally, emotionally, all kinds of stuff. So he's saying, the Bible's saying, step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at me, your high God. Be still and know that I am God. Think about that just for a minute. When was the last time that you were still and you knew that God was with you? You had an overwhelming sense Sometimes it takes me, I've, when I do my devotions, uh, I just have to be still. That's the first thing. Be still. Be still. Be still, mind. Be still, body. Be still and know, know, know. Not just know intellectually, know experientially. Know, I am God. You know, that alone, that verse alone, if you just practice that, wow, unbelievable things that would begin to take place in your life. The amount of love that you could experience in your heart and how that would chase away the crazy fears and the anxiety and the, and the anger and the depression that seems to dominate our lives too often. You heard me say it last week that, that I really believe that uh, all of our problems and even the sins that we, we find ourselves uh, running after and doing is a result of either not knowing God or in that moment of time forgetting who it is that loves us and cares for us and is going to take care of us. We're not relying on Him. Be still and know that I am God. Here's your next point, number three on your notes. It is a repeated event leading to a continuous thing where the Word of God dwells in you richly. So, so far on this study, what it means... uh, what is the means to the spirit-filled life? It is, it is not optional, but a command. It includes everyone, so he's inviting all of us into this. I must place myself into a position to receive it. I've got to learn to be still and know that he's God. Learn to walk in the spirit as opposed to the flesh. And now it is a repeated event leading to a continuous thing where the word of God dwells in you richly. And I, I get this from... Once again, if you study the Greek, New Testament is written in the Greek, literally it's saying, um, when it says be filled, literally it's saying be being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, continually give over control of your life to Him on a moment-by-moment basis. In fact, next week we're going to dive into our heart a little bit deeper to see what happens and when we, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, and, and the Bible will talk about grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, we're going to dive into our heart to see how that happens within our own lives. But we're, right now, we're just kind of looking at it in a, in a broader perspective, a more general way. And so he's saying here that this is something that is repeated, and it can be continuous. And in fact, it's interesting, Colossians three sixteen through 17 is a verse that mirrors almost exactly, except for the first phrase, Ephesians five eighteen through 21, our text. Listen to what it says here in Colossians three sixteen through 17. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then notice the next part. It sounds just like what we're studying here, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's all very similar. It's kind of a mirror, except for that first part, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And really what he's saying there, I believe, 
And that's why I added that to this point, number three, is that it is a repeated event leading to a continuous thing where the Word of God dwells in you richly. The word dwell means that His Word is so... Your life is so saturated with His Word that it influences your every move, everything that you do. The word richly has that idea of, an, of abundance. So really the idea here is that let the Word of God intoxicate you, dominate you, control your life. Very similar to that of be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's something interesting when you study the, the life of Jesus through the four Gospels is that Jesus was one who was saturated with the Word of God. Everything about his life. When he was tempted, how did he respond? You guys remember? Three different times he said, it is written. He was referring back. That was his resource to deal with the temptation. When he was tested by the religious leaders, he consistently referred back to the Scripture when he taught his disciples, he taught them the scripture. Even when he was tortured on the cross, he bled scripture. One of the things that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. So everything about Jesus was scripture. And if we're following Jesus, then obviously scripture should be of utmost importance to our lives. But here's something also interesting. Not only was Jesus saturated with Scripture, but this is what you're going to find. When you read this book from cover to cover, this book, the Bible, is saturated with Jesus. In fact, as you get to know this book, you will get to know the author of this book because it's talking to you all the way from Genesis to Revelation about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an encounter with him. And the more you get his word into your life, the more you're going to begin to live that spirit-filled life. I'm one who does a lot. I, I meditate and, and uh, memorize a lot of scripture. A lot of the scriptures that I share with you here are scriptures that I've memorized through the years. Even when Nancy and I go out hiking, I'll take actually a set of verses with me and we'll talk about them. This last week we were talking about these verses. It is amazing when you begin to reflect on these certain uh, phrases and these ideas, how they begin to pop out to you and how they begin to shine bright in your heart and you begin to have an experience with God and you begin to see Christ unlike ever before. And not only that, that becomes a, a form of equity or, or ammunition so that when, when life goes haywire, you've got something to deal with the demands and the decisions and the difficulties of life. You've got something to draw upon. So when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it's really the same ideas. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let his word, word dominate and, and, and saturate your life and control your life in every way, intoxicate you with all of who Christ is. There's an interesting event that takes place after Jesus' resurrection. He, he shows himself to a few of the disciples, but there's a place that's only found in the Gospel of Luke and it's known as, uh, as the walk of Emmaus. And there's two disciples out there on the road to Emmaus. And guess who shows up? They're kind of bummed out about this whole thing, this whole Jesus thing, because it didn't pan out quite like they wanted it to, though they've heard rumors that Jesus is actually resurrected, but they haven't seen him. And so they're, they're dejected, they're depressed, they're bummed out, they're despondent, and guess who shows up? Yeah, Jesus. He shows up with them and walks with them on this road to Emmaus. And he begins to talk to them, and they're still kind of blind to what's going on. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful experience of what has to take place in our lives when we study God's Word. But let me read here in Luke 24, starting in verse 27, and beginning with Moses. So he begins to talk to them, to kind of pull them out of their funk and their misunderstanding of Scripture. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So not only was Jesus saturated with scripture, but he was telling them, hey, didn't you see that all of scripture is about me and you guys didn't understand what I must go through to win the victory for you guys? And so he begins to explain all of these things to them. And then finally they arrive at a particular place and they sit down to eat and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And these next two verses are really wonderful verses because listen to what happens. And their eyes were opened 
and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. My prayer week in and week out is that your eyes would open. Some of you, your eyes haven't opened yet. You have not seen him. And I can tell. I can tell by your life. I can tell by your casual, cavalier life as it relates to the book, God's word, prayer, even showing up here. I mean, it's evident. I'm not going to dog on you because that, you're cavalier about that, because that would be kind of a religious approach. No, my prayer for you is that you would see him. I'm telling you, if you could see him, if you begin to understand who it is that loves you and gave his life for you, you would live the rest of your life for him. It happened to me a number of years ago. In fact, I came to a place in my own life uh, in my high school years after I graduated from high school. Coming from a more of a Pentecostal uh, background, more of an experience of that, I really needed to know, man, is there a rock-solid foundation to my belief? And, and this is what happened to me. The more I studied, the more I realized that the, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is historical, it's evidential, it's factual. And for me to deny what I had really discovered, as many have and have taught on and written books about, I would have to commit intellectual suicide. And at that moment in my life, as I began to see Jesus more clearly, it was either I'm going to go for Jesus all out or I'm going to take this book and flush it down the toilet and live my life however I want to live. And I, I mean, that was really the, the defining moment in my life. And that's really a little bit of what was going on with, this, with these guys on the road to Emmaus. They're thinking, wow, what's going on? I'm, we're dejected. We thought he was going to come in, set up his kingdom. But he comes along the road with them. And through his explanation of his word, their eyes are opened. And notice what it says here. This is, this is great. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? There are times when I read this book. There are times when I hear others quoting scripture to me and I hear other guys teach this book. That's exactly what happens to me. Did not my heart burn within me while he talked and as he opened scripture to me? Do you have that sense on your heart? My prayer is that you would have that. You would begin to see Jesus more clearly. That's what you need more than anything. You need to see his beauty. You need to see his glory. You need to see what he thinks of you, how much he loves you. That's the issue within our lives. That's why we we struggle with our lives so much, is that we're either not believers, we really don't know him, or we've forgotten who he is and what he's wanting to do in our lives. Here's your next point on your notes is that number four, it is a hard experience based on the objective truth of God's word. Hard experience based on the objective truth of God's word. Notice Paul doesn't say, hey, let's go get drunk and uh, get into Jesus. He didn't say that, did he? No, he didn't say that. And yet it's interesting. I've had a few people in, in the history of this church. I had a guy a number of years ago come up to me and say, man, I've been having these unbelievable encounters with Jesus. I go, wow, okay, cool. Let's sit down and talk. Sit down and talk. And then as I begin to probe a little bit further and ask him questions, it was in conjunction with his smoking of pot. And I said, ah, I don't think that's Jesus, dude, okay? In fact, I know it's not Jesus, because you're having the hard experience, but it's not based on objective truth. Um, I had a, I've had people also say to me, God has told me to leave my spouse for this other one, other person. Yeah, praise God. I'll pray for you with that. Let me pray with you. No, I, I said, what? That might be hard experience, but it's not based on objective truth. Does that make sense? I was watching 60 Minutes this last week, and Lady Gaga... Yeah, got all of her music. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't, okay. She's quite the person there, quite interesting person. She's, it's actually pretty sad and pathetic, really. But, uh, but what was interesting, on 60 Minutes, I was watching this, and she actually talked about one of her concerts, and, and it was almost like a Pentecostal revival kind of a meeting because she was telling those people out there, you let go of all those insecurities, and you let go of people trying to conform you into their image, and you be who you are supposed to be. And she began, like she was preaching, and these people were out there just crying and weeping. And so if you come to me and you went to a Lady Gaga concert, and now you feel set free, no, you haven't, Okay. 
That's all I'm saying. Because it's hard experience, but it's not based on objective truth. Here's what it tells us. Uh, it's actually found in, in John 4, 23 through 24. It's important for us to kind of see this as I talk about. I talk about experience a lot, but it's got to be on the, uh, the objective truth of God's word. This is Jesus with the woman caught in the, uh, the woman that was, uh, actually she wasn't caught in adultery, but this is the woman in the, by the well who had been married five times living with the guy. Uh, Jesus talks about her longing in her heart that he would give her uh, water that would satisfy her. And they get into the conversation about worship. And he says, but the hour is coming. Because she kind of got up in more, she got caught up in more of the form and where to worship. And Jesus says, not about where, it's who. But the hour is coming and it is now here when the true worshipers will worship. By the way, the word worship there, it's an interesting Greek word. It means this. It means to turn towards and kiss. So kiss, kisses, those are uh, ways of showing affection. So it's saying in your affection towards God, in your worship towards God, that's the idea here. So he's saying in your worship, when the true worshipers, and he's making a distinction, there are true worshipers and there are false worshipers. So you're either a true worshiper or you're a false worshiper. And so we'll worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking. I love that. The Father is seeking. He's pursuing you. He's passionate about you. He loves you. He's drawing you in. I know you might still have a lot of questions, but as you continue to look to Him and put your faith in Him, you're going to begin to see the truth about who He is, and that will begin to shine bright in your heart and as you make him more and more the passion, the priority, the pursuit, the purpose of your life. And he says, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so truth minus spirit is dead orthodoxy. You can have the objective truth, but you don't have that experience on your heart. It's just dead. There's a lot of Christians like that in America today. They're just dead orthodox. They're just going through the motions, just robotic. Just check the church box, went to church, yep, did that. Read my Bible, yep, did that. Prayed, yep, did that. Truth minus spirit is dead orthodoxy, but spirit minus truth is flat-out weirdness, okay? It's craziness. You can get really weird. There's all kinds of weird things that happen in the name of Jesus. There was a church in the valley here not too long ago that, that from some kind of a experience that they had that the people were actually clucking like chickens and roaring like lions saying that that was the spirit of god on them so it's interesting i don't see that anywhere in the text and so you always have to it's hard experience based on objective truth the christian life is both rational left brain and relational right brain and let me walk you through this it's one thing and you've heard me say this before it's one thing to know god loves you how many would agree that that's objective truth? It's based, the Bible teaches that. Everybody know that? Objective truth. It's one thing to know that, that God loves you. It's another thing when his love becomes more real to you than those that are closest to you, their love for you, or even the rejection of those that are closest to you. When his love is so great that you can withstand the rejection of those that are closest to you. Or it even exceeds the love of those that are closest to you. That is possible. That's part of that spirit-filled life. It's one thing to know that God forgives us. How many would agree God forgives us? That's objective truth. But how do you know that, that that's gone from your head into your heart and it's truly become an experience? You know that because you can begin to forgive the worst kind of offenses from others. You know that you've experienced His forgiveness when you can begin to offer that to the worst kind of offenses to you. You're beginning to get a glimpse of that. How many would agree that God is sovereign? You guys, that's objective truth. But what about the hard experience? How do you know that that's really beginning to take hold of your life? This is when I'm beginning to see it in my own life as it relates to the sovereignty of God, that God is loving, wise, and in control of my life. Now listen to me. This has been a hard one for me. I know that that's going from objective truth to hard experience when I can accept and thank God for whatever happens in my life as part of His plan. It's a hard one, isn't it? It's a hard one. Not only can I accept it, 
but I thank him for it. Now, I'm, I, there's some areas of my life I'm at the acceptance, but I, I, I'm still struggling over the thanking him for those things. But that's when you really know it's not just objective truth, but it's hard experience. God, you're in control. I submit to that. Next point on your notes. It can be experienced at salvation. So we're talking about the spirit-filled life. Acts 9 talks about Paul. Also in the process of sanctification, so through, through spiritual disciplines, Sunday worship, when we get together through our worship time, Bible study, personal studies, uh, obedience. There have been times in my life, you've heard me share the story about the guy that lived a few doors down that I wanted to go down the street and take care of him in more ways than one. I just, I mean, I, I, I actually had a hatred towards him and I had to get on my knees before God and I met God and he began to fill my life up with a love for him unlike I had ever experienced before for anyone. And so in our obedience and when we cry out to God in our spiritual disciplines, we can have that encounter with God but also in extraordinary times of greater illumination, such as retreats. How many have ever gone on a retreat here and, and come away? Wow, talk about mountaintop experience, no doubt. How about fasting and prayer? Or even times of crisis. How many have ever gone through times of crisis and you have these encounters with God that are overwhelming, that you know that his empowering presence in your life is enabling you to be what he wants you to be, to do what he wants you to do. You're aware of his favor and his grace at that given moment in your life. I have. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so these are the different times that we can experience. And let me give you a couple of illustrations and we'll knock out the last point here. Acts 4.31, Peter and John are taken before the Sanhedrin because there's this miracle that happened and there's thousands of people coming to faith through their testimony. And the Sanhedrin says, hey guys, quit talking about Jesus. You guys are going to be in big trouble. And so they threaten them And this is what Peter says. Peter says this. We can't help but tell people about what we have seen and heard. We can't stop. That's a a sign of someone who's really walking in the reality of who Christ is. We can't help but do it. So they run back to their little church group, their small group. And they say, these guys are being mean to us. We need to pray that God will change our circumstances and give us favor with all the people in the land. No, they don't say that. No, they go back and they say, you know what? God is sovereign. God's in control. God, give us boldness that no matter what goes down in our life, may we proclaim your glory to all the people. In fact, it's a, it's a wonderful prayer found in the fourth chapter of Acts. But this is the tail end of it. It says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so there are those, those times we experience his presence in our life. In Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When was the last time you just had that overwhelming sense? How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what I am. My daddy's going to take care of me. He loves me. He's looking after me. That's the Holy Spirit burning it deep into our hearts. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, objective truth, heart experience, deep in our lives. I'm telling you, you are unshakable and unbreakable when you understand and live in the reality that Father God is your daddy. And you understand that and it, it lavishes you with his love. Next point, last one. It is a pursuit of the experience maker not the experience. So the focus has to be, you're focused on him, not the experience, not the giver. I'm sorry. Yes, the giver, not the gifts. Okay, I had to correct that one. It is a pursuit of the giver, not the gifts, because this is it. You've heard me talk about this all last year. His love is better than life. Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Hebrews eleven six, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Matthew 6, 5 through 6, Jesus says, Hey, don't pray like the Pharisees. The only time their prayer life lights up is to put on a show for everybody. But this is what he says. He says, Pray like this. 
When you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father, your daddy, who sees in secret, will reward you. Your daddy, who's in secret, will reward you. Everybody look up here just for a minute. If you had any idea, if you had any idea what your daddy, your heavenly father, thinks about you, feels about you, wants to do in your life, there would be nothing that would keep you from prayer. So I'm not going to hammer you, hey, you need to pray more. No, you need to see his heart for you and then you will run into his arms. You will run into his arms. How do you know that you're pursuing the giver over the, the gifts? How do you know you're pursuing, you know, how do you know the difference between the two? If the only time you, your prayer, you pray is in crisis or if you defect from the faith because of unanswered prayer or because of your circumstances, then you're seeking his hand rather than his face. We don't follow him because he makes life better. We follow him because he is better than life. He is better than life no matter what we face. Stand with me. We're going to pray this prayer. It's the last of our notes. It's our closing prayer. And the context of this prayer is uh, Psalm 63. I'm going to read 1 through 5. But this is David. Now check this out. David is fleeing for his life. His son Absalom is taking over the kingdom. He's running crazy for his life. He's in the wilderness. His son has rebelled against him, betrayed him. Now, I want you to hear his heart cry, and that's my heart cry for us this morning. If you're go- no matter what you're going through, make this your heart cry. That's what you need more than anything. You need a glimpse of Jesus. You need to begin to see his glory, his beauty. You need to see how much he loves you. I'm telling you, if you could begin to live in the reality of that, that's the spirit-filled life. You are unshakable and unbreakable no matter what you're going through. Listen to what he says. Keep your eyes open. We're going to pray through this. I'm going to walk you through this. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands Check this out. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Mmm. You guys hungry? You guys want to get out of here and eat, don't you? And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. God, may that be our heart cry. God, you are most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in you. And when we're most satisfied in you, we are crucified to this world. So may may that be true about all of us. May this be our heart attitude. And God, we know that if this is our heart attitude, you will fill us. You will fill us with your presence. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.